Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have Martin Eddington. He is the author, uh, writes on a lot of paranormal and supernatural subjects. Um, he has a definitely, he's written a lot of books. Um, the one that really caught my eye here, I'm going to have to say, it was The Real Atlantis in the Eye of the Sahara. That's something that just recently uh, um, I, I heard about. Remark. Hi, Gary. How, yeah. How are you? I'm good. You? Good. So uh, maybe I should start by giving some of my background and how I got into all this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm uh, an old engineer. Uh, worked mostly in IT during my career. But also when I was about 19 years old, I took a meditation class from a blind psychic physicist at my school, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. And he also taught me about uh, spiritual enlightenment techniques, like opening chakras and manipulating energy forces and things like that. So in most of my life, not only have I had a technical career, but I've had a, a spiritual growth career, I guess you could say, in learning about the spiritual realm and the paranormal. And I also had many experiences with premonitions. So anyway, in about 2010, I decided to start writing about my experiences because I felt I had a unique perspective. My perspective of being a technical person trained to be an engineer, but also with actual experiences in the paranormal and, and interests in different topics, which are pretty far out. And I thought this gave me a unique perspective. Mm -hmm. So I, I lend my perspective my, to my books. I have about 85 books that are on my website mkeddingtonbooks.com. That's M-K-E-T-T-I-N-G-T-O-N-B-E-O-K-S.com. And so I've written on a number of topics. I'll get to the one on Atlantis, but I'll mention some of the other categories. So, of course, I wrote books on the paranormal about uh, premonitions and my experience with that, and many other books on the paranormal, too, including one called Godlike Powers, which also is kind of an encyclopedia of different paranormal experiences. I did a lot of research and wrote on longevity and immortality, even developed a training program for uh, consultants to learn how to uh, implement the 10 principles of personal longevity, I call it, to help people live decades longer. I've written books on living in space, like space colonies. And I wrote a series of ancient history books, including the one about Atlantis. And uh, shall I go into that book more and how I got into that one? Absolutely. I'm really curious about that one. Okay. So I'd read my, I'd read a series of Atlantean books in my background and mm -hmm. I found it to be a fascinating topic. But then a couple of years ago, I read it, or I, I actually, I saw a really interesting video on YouTube, which is about a, some claims that the eye of the Sahara or the Richot structure in Western Africa was a possible site for Atlantis. And I thought, boy, that's pretty strange. And because most of the books that I've read were all about 
how it could be in the Mediterranean or it was in sunken land off the Azores in the Atlantic. But this, this was really interesting. And the more I researched it, the more convinced I became that this was a real candidate and probably the strongest candidate for where Atlantis originally existed. So going into some of what I learned is first of all, the rich hat structure is a very unusual structure. They don't think, they don't know if it's volcanic, it's certainly not a meteor strike, but it has a series of rings. And if you look at Plato's Critias, which mm -hmm. is his main description about Atlantis, it really has the dimensions and he gives the dimensions of the structure, which are very similar to the rich hat structure in terms of the rings, in terms of the lower areas, which could be where water was located, and even the mountains and plains surrounding it. And I wondered, how could this be? Well, it turns out that when the Atlantis city probably existed, according to Plato, which was like 10,000 BC, because he said 9,000 years before the present age, so maybe in that realm too, that this was an area of Africa where the climate was totally different where there was water, where it was fertile. It wasn't all dried out like a desert. Right. And that uh -huh. the sea level may have been different, that the rich hat structure, if it was a few hundred feet lower, it might've been actually at the same as sea level. So even though it's inland a few hundred miles, there were old rivers that, were, that can be seen from different geological tests that would have connected to that area. So it's very possible that the whole rich hat structure could have been a very fertile and filled with water area and also connected to the sea by rivers and canals. Very, very possible. But then an interesting thing that I also found, which I'd never seen anywhere, where there was an ancient, there was an ancient historian called Herodotus. Have you ever heard of him? No, I haven't. He was an ancient historian. Uh, I think he, I don't know if he lived the same as, same time as Plato, but within a couple hundred years. And Herodotus described a map of the known world. And there's been people who made up what that map should have looked like from his description. So it's not exact because we don't know what his actual map looked like. But I listed in my book four or five versions of that map. And strangely enough, it has a location for Atlantis, which is in Western Africa. It was really interesting because it was a totally different source than Plato, who also identified Atlantis as being in the same area as the Rich Hat. And I thought that was really interesting, really unusual. And uh, there's other evidences too. Uh, one of the things I did when I was doing my book is I used Google Earth to go through the structure in the center of the Rich Hat, where one of the temples was supposed to be the temple of the of Poseidon, the mythological temple, and people who visited the area of the Rich Hat, and they show their videos of being on, actually on land there. Mm -hmm. But if you look at these satellite photographs, you can actually pick out the perimeters of man-made structures in the sand. And I took some photographs of those Google Earth, uh, Google Earth projections, and I actually have them in the book also that there are some there is a structures or to be excavated in that area so there's a lot we don't know about this area of course it's very remote really not visited much by people 
but I think it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. One another aspect is Leo Frobenius, who was a German researcher in the late 19th and early 20th century. He also identified, after doing lots of archaeological research, that there was an ancient high-tech civilization in that era that also existed in West Africa. So you can't say that any one thing is a smoking gun, but if you put all these things together, it convinces me and some other people that, that this is pr the most probable location of what was the original site of Atlantis. So that was my opinion, and that's why I wrote the book. That's incredible. Um, has there been any ex uh, excavation going on there? Have they um, you know, done no, any digging? No, paid for any excavations that I know of. Uh, nobody even believes it. Um, and of course, with everything else going on in the world and with the pandemic and everything, I think it's lost immediate priority. Right. But I do hope that someday somebody who has money will take an expedition there to do some digs because, you know, the satellite photographs show that there are real ruins in the center of the rich act and those should be explored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, it could be the archaeological, I can't even pronounce this word, archaeological, archaeological find of the century. Yeah, it would be the archaeological find of history, I think, if it was true. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's really interesting is the history of human civilization keeps getting pushed back. For instance, you're familiar with the ruins at Gobekli Tepe in eastern Turkey? Yes, yes, I am. I mean, we used to think that civilization only went back a few thousand years B.C., but now we see these ruins that have been found uh, in the last 20, 30 years in eastern Turkey, which shows that people were making structures back in what we call the Stone Age. Right. So the history, I believe, of our civilization goes much further back than anyone believes. And that's kind of the basis of many of the other books I wrote on ancient history, is that uh, there is so much that is unknown and so many misassumptions that may have been made. We have ancient relics all over the world. And uh, that's, that's really how come I came to write a whole series of books on that topic. For instance, can I mention one of these sites that's really interesting? Oh, absolutely. Well, there's a site in Montana called the Montana Megalus. And there's even a channel on YouTube about it. And if you look at these megaliths, you'll see that they have to be man-made, such as there are two very tall stones uh, from the pictures. They must be 20 or 30 feet tall that have a flat rock capstone on them. There's also walls that are obviously blocks of walls there. There are different shapes that don't look natural. But this is a site that has never been discussed before as a archaeological site. And if it is a real archaeological site, it must go back thousands and thousands of years. There's just so many places that are not recognized by conventional archaeology or structures which don't make any sense. But I'm of, I'm of the belief that you should accept structures that look man-made are likely man-made unless you can find another explanation and that instead of saying they couldn't exist we need to rethink how we're examining these structures how we're deciding that things exist or don't exist 
Uh, let me give you another example. I, I'm just looking at these pictures of the Montana megalith. They're they're fascinating. They remind me a little bit of um, of Stonehenge. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if you look at them all together, they have to be man-made, especially that tall one with the capstone. I don't see how a glacier could have formed that. It, it just doesn't look possible with all the other evidence. No, definitely so, not. There's a lot of structures like that. Right. There's also one, I think, in, in New Hampshire, like just the, like a little Stonehenge, too. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence of man-made megaliths all throughout New England, which look a lot like the dolmens and, and structures in Europe. And, of course, we know the Vikings got here a thousand years ago. Right. But there's also plenty of reason to think that earlier cultures came over from uh, the old world to the new world and that they built structures here, too. There's just an amazing amount of information about it. So how far back do you think civilization goes and how advanced do you think they actually became and what happened? Do you have any theories? You know, that's a really interesting question. And that's part of the reason I kept writing about uh, about ancient history because I wrote, I wrote a series of books on these ancient sites, two versions of that, strange objects which did not exist the history of possible giants in those ancient underground cities and tunnels. Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Sorry. Bless you. And um, I came to some really interesting conclusions. Again, I'm not a professional archaeologist, but I, I'm trying to use my analytical abilities and the information available. So first of all, I think that it's fair to say that some type of civilizations may go back 100,000 years that civilizations certainly existed which were destroyed by the ice ages. But further than that, there are, which I put in my book, Strange Objects Which Do Not Exist, of things that are like found in coal seams, like um, wheels that are in a coal mine, uh, Spark plugs found inside of rocks, right, metal structures one. found in, in coal seams. I mean, incredible things that really should not exist. And these strata are hundreds of millions of years old. So that's got to be impossible. You might as well throw those out, right? But if mm -hmm. you collect those objects together, then you come to the inescapable conclusion that these things existed far back in time before mankind or even our ancestors were supposed to have existed. There's also many footprints of potential giants that existed back then, not only thousands, but millions of years ago. And the subject of giants is a whole other topic because they seem to have existed in human history as well. The conclusion I finally came to is that there was some intelligent race that has made objects that are found that are not only thousands, but millions of years old. And the only thing I can think of is that an alien race must have come to Earth and had some uh, some culture that they created that were probably giants and that those have existed throughout history. That's the only conclusion I could come to that makes sense mm -hmm. because you can't just throw out the evidence of all these objects. You have to figure out if enough objects have been found, that gives a validity to the idea that intelligently made objects really existed back then. So then the only other thing is, well, we know man was not created uh, that the first, the first human ancestors were only a few million years old, that modern man as we know him was probably only 100,000 to 
50,000 or 200,000 years old, but there had to be something that was intelligent living on the earth back then. I don't know the entire answer to that, and that's really just a speculation, but uh, you, you can't just ignore the evidence. And that's the problem is too many scientists, they, probably because they're, they don't want to be ridiculed by their peers, throw out a lot of evidence because it doesn't fit with accepted theories. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, mm-hmm. look at the evidence first. And if the evidence is valid, then figure out how it could be valid. And what are the theories that explain how it could exist? Right. Um, do you think, how, how do you feel about the theory of evolution versus the idea of um, the planet Creation being seeded or, or panspermia or like, like how do you think, humans came to be? Ah, a great question. Well, I do believe in evolution. I mean, I've, I've, if you ever read Darwin's uh, Origination of the Species, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's evolution that's long-term, and they think there's also evolution which is short-term based on, uh, what is that? Gene- I'm trying to remember the name of the genetic concept that um, have short-term effects in our genes as well. Anyway, I do believe in evolution. I don't think humanity was just created all at once. But I do think also that there's a lot more to our evolutionary history than we know about. You mentioned panspermia. I think we're seeing more and more evidence inside of meteorites. I read about it all the time that there are not only amino acids, but maybe the basis of life in rocks that come from the stars. And that would actually make a lot of sense that if that can exist in rocks for millions of years as they float through space, and certainly those meteorites crashing on Earth uncounted billions of years ago could have created life on Earth. Right. I mean, one of the things we know about life now that we didn't even five years ago or 10 years ago is that life exists in incredible diversity in climate in the Earth. In fact, there have been recent surveys that have shown that life actually exists in rocks going down miles into the earth, that the whole mantle of the earth going down miles, uh, it has some type of bacterial life in it. So it's an amazing. If you killed off all the life on earth from uh, nuclear weapons or comet strikes or something, it would eventually come back because it's embedded in the earth itself. Life is not to be, not to be uh, destroyed easily. It's 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 just part of our whole Earth at this point. Interesting. Do you um, think maybe like the whole planet or just the the whole universe is just one living organism? Yeah, this kind of gets into my spiritual beliefs because I will mention that I started off as a. Methodist and Presbyterian, that's how I was raised. And then as I explored spirituality and religion, then I came much more to the beliefs that we can reach enlightenment through different techniques. Some of these are Buddhist related, some are just uh, related to other other approaches that we can, we can have spiritual experiences that raise our uh, connection with God and that God is actually part of the universe, that God permeates the universe. 
that every object has an essence of God's spirit in it, whether it's a my desk or my computer or a rock, it has some level of consciousness and that our spirit is really our connection, our, our part of that cosmic consciousness and then we can connect to it. Many different groups have believed historically that they can connect with these consciousness, like the Theosophists, which was a very popular group back in the 19th and early 20th century. They talked about the different consciousnesses of the universe. They talked about the consciousness of Earth or Gaia, of the, the, the sun, of the galaxy, and that there, you can connect to them on kind of, I would call it different frequencies. Uh, I, one of the things I've done, for instance, as part of my spiritual experiments is I went and sat under some ancient redwood trees and I tried to commune with their consciousness. And it's really interesting when you sit under a redwood, ancient redwood tree or sequoia tree and go into a meditative state and kind of try to commune and ask questions, you get this incredible feeling of ancient wisdom when you're trying to talk to that, that uh, tree. Mm -hmm. So I guess in general, I would say, yes, I think the entire universe is conscious. I think that we can tune into it in different ways and that our spiritual growth is really a matter of us learning to connect with our spirit. In fact, one analogy I use a lot in my books is what I call um, the analogy of a light bulb in a in a aquarium and in the water is all of the sand and dirt, which is stirred up. And normally the sand and dirt would represent your thoughts and emotions. And if you can calm those down, the light bulb shines out. And this also connects you with your spirit because the spirit lives in a timeless, spaceless realm. And so that means that the spirit can also perceive things in the future and in the past or future probabilities, I call it. Right. And this is one way I have come to understand and explain some of my spiritual experiences. Shall I mention some of the most powerful ones that I've had? I'd love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the first one I had was in about uh, 1976. And I was working at General Electric's gas turbine engineering as a co-op job during the summer while I was going to college. And back then... I was kind of a crazy kid and, and they let me do what I wanted during lunchtime. So I, I used to meditate at my desk. And one day I was meditating because my job was going to be over and I was going to have a, a couple of weeks before school started again. And then I was good, going to drive to Cape Cod and see what was going on in Cape Cod. So I was meditating on that. And I was meditating about surfing because I'd never done it and I wanted to try it. So I suddenly I had a vision that I was walking down a beach that these guys offered to let me surf. And I went out surfing, having trying to get up. And all of a sudden I had an accident. I went under, the board hit me, bang. I got knocked out of the meditation. I thought, oh my God, that was really vivid because it was very vivid, more so than a dream. And I thought, this is strange. So here we go, a couple of weeks later, I'm out on Cape Cod and I'm walking down the beach and I see a bunch I see these guys with surfboards and they say, do you know where I can rent one? And they said, oh, they've got extra. You can come try with us. So I tried for hours and hours to get up and I wasn't very good at it and couldn't really get up very well, but I was getting very tired. 
And about two in the afternoon, I was working on getting up on the surfboard and a wave knocked me over and I came up and I saw the surfboard rushing towards me. Bam, it hits me in the lower chin, almost knocks me out. I've got blood coming off my chin. I stagger out of the water. The guys take me to the hospital. I needed 10 stitches and two sutures. And it was the same exact vision that so I had. So you saw your future. So this is the first experience. Wow. And I didn't know if it was a fixed or probability. Mm-hmm. And I had more experiences, but probably the most dramatic one that also taught me about how future probability works was many years later in 1998, because I'd had many experiences in the meantime. So I knew when a premonition had some reality to it. So in this instance, I was living here in Los Angeles, California. I was married at the time and my ex-wife's mom lived in Barcelona, Spain, and we were going to go over to visit her. And it was near, it was getting to like the middle of August and, uh, I was waiting for a contract, an IT contract, so I didn't want to go until I heard whether I get it or not. And so I agreed for her to go with my ex-stepdaughter and my infant son, and that I would follow a week later or so. Anyway, uh, about a week later, uh, the, the headhunter tells me that, no, you should go because this isn't going to happen for a couple more weeks. So go have a good time. So anyway, I was using a travel agent. I decided to call the travel agent. And when I tried to call, I got a very dark black feeling. I thought, oh my God. And I put the phone down. And a couple hours later, I tried again. And again, I got a dark black feeling of death. And I knew enough from my previous premonitions that I should pay attention to these types of things. So I think I waited till the next day And I tried one more time. I actually picked up the phone, thought about the trip I was going to take to visit them in Barcelona. And I got this feeling again. I couldn't do it. I was just, um, it was just an awful feeling. So I lay down and started meditating on it. And I lay down and tried to look forward to September 2nd when I was looking at going. And as I looked at that date, I got a vision of a plane crash and that if I went, I would die. And I thought about it and I thought, this is ridiculous. But based on the previous experiences I'd had, I realized that I should take it seriously. So I felt really stupid, but I thought, you know, it's got enough of validity to it from my previous experiences that I should listen to this warning. So I called my wife and I told her and she kind of understood. And I should also mention at the time that I'd had a feeling for a couple of years beforehand that my life was going to end. I didn't know why. But then I made the decision not to go. And it would, I have to tell you, it was very difficult to make this decision because I felt stupid about it. And I really wanted to be with my family. So I had a tough time with it. But I just decided, based on the previous experiences I had, that I needed to do it. So as soon as I made this decision, I felt better. And 
I went around just doing the puttering around the house and feeding the dog and stuff like that. So come September 2nd, which was the day I was going to leave, I knew there were several flights I could have taken. And one of them that I could have taken was the Swiss Air flight. And that flight crashed into the ocean off Newfoundland, killing a couple hundred people on board. So I thought, there's no way I can prove that this would have happened to me. But it was the same date that I would have gone. It was the same type of connecting flight. And I think my premonition really saved my life. Wow. That's kind of like um, that movie, what was it called? Final Destination? Yeah. I thought about that. It's that movie. (laughs) Mine's a real Final Destination story. And I'm sure other people have had similar feelings. That's why they did not get on certain airplane flights. But this also taught me something. It taught me that there are probabilities that things are going to happen. And that you can change the prop, you can change the probability in a different direction, but it can be very difficult. And the fight I had my own mentally was that I really wanted to go, and I thought it's stupid to pay attention to these things. And that was the momentum that was taking me towards that event. But then I let my experience with premonitions kick in, and I said, you know, wait a minute here. There's really something going on, and I'm just not going to do this because. I feel so strongly about it. So you can change certain events that are going to happen to you. And I think it's an analogy would be you're in a boat in a river and you can go, you can navigate from side to side in the river, but you're still going down the, the current in the river. And um, it, it's, it's fascinating. There are also some events which are are so major that they project for, forward and backward in time. Mm-hmm. One of those is I had a premonition about 9-11. And what it was is that I used to live in New Jersey when I was in college. My folks lived in Jersey. That's where I'm from originally. Okay. And I went, and so in like 1975, I went into the city and they were back then, they were building the Twin Towers. And I thought I was really fascinated by them. So I, I went in and thought, huh, the elevator's open. How far can I go up the tower? So I was able to take the, the elevator about halfway up to the 50th floor. And so I went into this big open room. There were no, there were no uh, partitions or anything. And I walked over to the wall and looked out at the view. It was pretty nice. And I was still lear- I was learning about paranormal and spiritual growth at the time. So I thought to try an experiment. So I put my hands on a column and closed my eyes and thought, how long will this tower last? And the number that came back to me was about 25, 26 years. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense. A tower like this should last 100 years or 200 years. And of course, we didn't know then about what was going to happen. I should also mention that back in the year 2000 in September, I was with my wife and our infant son, and we were visiting my sister who lived in New York and her daughter, and we were all walking past the complex of buildings at the Trade Center. And my wife stops, and she she was somewhat intuitive, too. And she said, a lot of people are going to die here. She just, had, she just said that. She had a vision about it. A lot of people are going to die here. This was in September, a year before the 9-11 event. So I don't know that events like that are changeable because... 
there, you, there are so many things you'd have to change. If you tried to warn people, they'd think you're crazy or they'd arrest you or lock you up. But major events like that seem to send signals back through time that if you concentrate on, you can actually tell some of these major events that are going to happen. And some people say Nostradamus had, had um, portrayals that predicted this event. I don't know, maybe. But uh, I do think it's possible to look at events forward in time from where you are and have some feeling of what might happen. So this, this brings up a, a whole another can of uh, worms that, that that's popping into my head right now, connecting these things together. Um, one is, um, you know, um, the future, you know, um, like Edgar, Edgar Casey in, in his um, experience with with Atlantis and seeing Atlantis, an idea mm. of the Akashic records. So, um, you know, you can kind of like in a meditative state, you can kind of look at certain things and get certain information. Um, that, that's you know outside of time basically because you know essentially you can step out of time and there's no future or no present mm-hmm. and then the other thing that i'm thinking about is we you know we were talking about those ancient civilizations and who it could be um what if it was us traveling in time yeah i've thought about that too that's another possibility um in fact one of the books i wrote i think it was this year was about the idea that some people do travel in time. I call it real time travel stories also on my site, mkeddingtonbooks.com. And these are basically stories about how there are, there are instances that people seem to have really traveled back in time. Uh, one of the best known is a couple of women who traveled to see the Versailles site in France. And as they were walking around, they saw things and met people who seemed to go back to the times of Louis the 14th. Another area is a place called Bold Street in Liverpool, England, where there's been many experiences of people going back in time 50, 100 years and seeing stores and things that didn't exist uh, now, but existed back then. So while I did not think that time travel was possible, a lot of the stories that I was able to find about time slips or people going back in time uh, make a lot of sense. And when you put them all together, you have to say there are areas where time seems to have portals or where time is malleable and that people have had experiences which don't make any sense except for the fact that they may have gone back in time. Are you familiar with the Montauk Project? Um, a little bit. By the way, can I take a quick break? I have to get up for a second, Gary. Oh, sure. You can stop the recording for a second. Yeah, I can pause it. All right. Yeah, the Montauk Project. I don't know a lot about it. I've read a few stories about it. I know there's a guy who claims he's traveled in time and been to the future and all sorts of things. I just don't know enough about it to know if it's possible. I do think the government has many secret projects they don't want to talk about. 
Uh, I know from one book on aliens that I wrote, and if you do a lot of research, the government seems to have alien technology that they've been working on for years, uh, that they may have had uh, been working with an alien race to send people to the stars back in the 60s. There's lots of interesting stories about that. So I know that the government has a lot of things that nobody would believe that they do. So who knows? When, when, with the government cover-up stories, like what is the, what is one that you you definitely believe is to be true? Well, I think this the Serpo.org uh, story. You know about Serpo? Um, actually, I don't think I do. Okay, you can go to Serpo.org and read the entire story in a series of releases of emails. But I should first mention that there's a recent story that's in the news today about a guy who used to be, I think, the head of the Israeli space program who claimed that we are in contact with aliens, but they don't want to have the, our government say anything to the public uh, about connections with an alien civilization until we quit fighting each other and quit having wars. And that's actually one of the best explanations I've heard of as to why the government might be keeping this secret. But as to Serpo, the story of Serpo uh, goes back to the 1960s. First of all, it claims that we had contact with alien races going back to the 50s or even earlier. But in the 1960s, that we sent a crew of like, there was a 10 or 12 people on an alien spaceship to another planet, Zeta Reticuli, where they lived for like, was it 15 years? And that a couple did not come back. And this actually ties in very closely to uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie, where there was a group that were being sent on an alien spaceship. And it's a fascinating story because it talks about how Reagan was told about this and um, the instruments they took and the information they brought back and what it was like on this other planet. Um, it's just very detailed and uh, something that is fascinating. Now, there's no other third parties that really can explain that, but the the nature of it, the level of detail is pretty incredible. So somebody either has a really good imagination or there might be some truth to it. Mm -hmm. But another, another thing I found is I did, I did write another, I wrote two books on aliens. Now I like to write on unusual and far out subjects. And one I wrote was Aliens and Secret Technology. And there's been other books on the same topic of it, secret alien technology. Like Philip Corso claimed he worked for the Pentagon and that they had a lot of secret technology that they released to industry. Um, I found a lot of other stories that were really fascinating. One of the most interesting is about um, the idea of technology that was being researched in Silicon Valley. It's called the Carat Anti-Gravity Story, C-A-R-E-T. You can look that up on the internet. And the basic idea was that there was alien anti-gravity technology in these metamaterials that was being experimented on. And there's actually a lot of images on the internet of the diagrams of alien technology. In other words, these diagrams are, describe how it works. And that the technology was a kind of a metamaterial, which is thousands of years in advance of what we have. And to make it work, all you need to do is put these detailed diagrams together, like kind of like a circuit diagram, 
and then those things will work. Hmm. There's also a lot of that's that's one story. There's um, also a lot of other stories of UFO technology. Uh, a good one is the TR3B. Have you ever heard uh, of the TR3B? No. Um, it's a purported advanced technology uh, ship that was created that uses anti-gravity to fly. It's, it's one of these triangular aircraft that uh, has a big bulbous center. And the idea is that by rotating mercury vapor at hundreds of thousands of times per second, that it has an anti-gravity effect and that it allows these things to fly by reducing uh, momentum or reducing gravity by 90%. So you can make some incredible turns and incredible speeds in this spaceship when only get affected by about 10% of the force, which uh, is really interesting. So what is, anyway, your, what, what is your take on Bob Lazar with the Element 115? Yeah, I've read about that too. And uh, it's a, another fascinating story. Uh, he definitely worked for some of these government organizations. Uh, is it true? I don't know, but he has a very detailed description of it. And I guess the main the main thing to say is you've got these individual sources who talk about these different levels of anti-gravity technology. They don't necessarily contradict each other, but there's enough sources that talk about this technology that there must be something to it. And other authors have come to the same conclusion that our, our secret budgets for secret aircraft may also have been involved in generating uh, ships that have anti-gravity technology. Is element 115 what powers them? I don't know. Um, but there's enough stories about different methods of anti-gravity ships or anti-gravity creation that I think there must be some core of truth to it. I don't know what the core is. Yeah, I totally agree. I th I do think that there's uh, truth. I mean, I, I find Bob Lazar actually very believable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his interviews are very believable. Yeah, and, and, and he hasn't profited from it either. Right. Um, if any, if anything, it's really worked against him from you know, up until recently, anyway. No, it's interesting though. I I think there's a core of people in the UFO universe you would say that has a lot of truth and others that are just kind of hangers on it reminds me of i went contact in the desert conference out out in uh out in the california desert a few years ago mm -hmm. it's one of the biggest conferences on ufos and aliens and i went to lectures and frankly a lot of the lectures were very disappointing because they all talked about their experiences of what they'd seen but it doesn't seem believable but then there were a few people who had believable stories. So it, it said to me that among all of the people who are latching on to that whole topic, there are a lot of people that may be fakes, but there's a core of people who have real information. And uh, one of the best of those, I'm trying to remember his name. He's a, he's a doctor, medical doctor. Uh, what, God, what is his name? Um, Steve something. Um, he, he has a lot of collected a lot of information about aliens and UFOs and what he says is very credible and the movies he, he's made are very credible. So 
anyway, it's interesting that there's a lot of believers and followers of the topic. And again, I think there's a core of truth there, but there's a lot of things that are just, well, I hate to say nutcases who just jump on the bandwagon. The question is, how do you separate the truth from the shaft, from the fakes? Right. How do you find out right. what's really true? Well, I think there's only a couple ways. One, one is um, evidence. And I think, to the other way, I mean, it's, it's not proof, but um, when people are sort of collaborate, like when, when you hear the same thing from more than one person and the two people have no contact or, yes, or access to sense. the same information. You know, so you know they that didn't read sense. it somewhere or hear about it from somebody. The, that's the only two ways to really verify that type of information. Um, I think when it comes, yeah, that to, makes sense to me. And when it comes to U.S. reports, I mean, like, I know we've definitely like like the Phoenix Light was was verified by thousands mm-hmm. of people. You know, yep. the recent Nemeth Nemeth's uh, video came out. Um, so. Uh, there was the Battle that, of L.A. So there was a lot, a lot why, of really good UFO sightings that could be verified by lots of people. And that's why I combined what my knowledge was of aliens and UFOs with my studies of ancient prehistory, because it's clear to me that there have been aliens and UFOs visiting Earth for thousands, if not millions of years. And given the life of the universe of being billions of years old, it makes sense that there may be advanced alien races who have visited us way back when, or even in the present. And that that is one of the only explanations as to how some of these ancient objects could exist because they really were developed before humanity existed. So what other explanation would there be? I don't know. Yeah. And that's the only explanation really. Yeah. Um, so one of the other topics that you write on that is really interesting and caught my eye is longevity. Now, I don't know if you're talking about like longevity through, um, you know, exercise and eating healthy, or if you're talking something like, uh, like what Van Tassel was trying to do with the immortality machine. Well, yes, it's a very interesting subject. And, uh, I did several years of research on it before I started writing anything. But my original question was back in about 2008. And I was asking the question of how long do people really live? How long can they live? And I started doing research on it and I found, and I did most of my research on the internet. I found both records and videos and other things that indicated people had lived well past the age of 120, which is the purported age of the oldest person, a French woman named Jean Calumet. But I found people who lived 130, 140, 150. People who even seem to have evidence that they lived over 200 years old. And this led me to write my first book on the topic, which was called Physical Immortality, A History and How-To Guide. And the idea is that, first of all, long-lived people exist. And this gets into my 10 principles also, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I was trying to figure out if these people really existed, and I became convinced they had, they did, because I found hundreds of records of people all over the world who lived to incredible ages. So the question to me was, how is this possible? How could this possibly be? 
And what I came up with was what I call the 10 principles of personal longevity. And I'll read those off if you don't mind. Yeah, please. Uh, so the first principle is real long, real long live people exist. People have really lived a long time, so you can do it too. And the second principle I came up with is to define your purpose in life and know your life purpose to live life with meaning. The idea being that if you want to live a long time, you have to have a purpose because people who just drift through life without a purpose, especially when they get older, are not going to live long. In other words, if you sit in an old folks home and have no reason to exist, you're going to die quickly. So we need purpose. Enable your life urge. No, without doubt, you'll live a long and happy life. In other words, there's kind of a life urge we have that we can harness and negative thoughts can damage that. For instance, there used to be commercials on the t- on uh, the radio here in Los Angeles where a certain cemetery company would say, you're getting to be up in your 70s and 80s and you should come in here and buy a plot. And I thought to myself, how self-defeating is that? If you're going to expect to die at a certain age, then you will. The fourth thing I found was the importance of a spiritual connection. A spiritual connection is important for happiness and long-term health. Because one of the things I noticed in all these long-lived people is that they had some type of spiritual belief, whether it was Christian or Muslim or whatever, or they just walked in the garden and in the fields all the time. They had a spiritual connection, which helped them with their health. (laughs) The fifth thing is called uh, having love in your heart. And this is not just a cosmetic thing. It's not just a um, social conditioning. It's about the idea that if you can open up your heart chakra, if you can, that's another connection you make to your environment, which helps make you happier and healthier. Sixth is activating your vital forces. In other words, through opening your chakras and your energy meridians, both Indian and Chinese, medicines, that you will improve your health and enjoy more longevity. The seventh is the science of longevity. There's lots of therapies and discoveries, uh, one of them being, for instance, that resveratrol, which is extracted from red wine, from grapes, uh, is a longevity enhancer. Number eight, about keeping your physical body healthy. That that can be important also, but that also includes different herbal supplements you can take, proper diets, and exercise. In fact, I wrote a book which covered a lot of that, which had to do with four long-lived cultures around the world and the types of diets and lifestyles that they live. The ninth thing is using your intuition for safety, because I truly believe from my experience with premonitions Absolutely. is you can, learn your, you can learn to use your intuition to keep you safe, to avoid accidents. And when everything else is taken care of, Accidents are one of the likeliest things to kill you. And then 10, implement the above principles in your life. So how do you implement these things in your life to live longer and uh, really enjoy life? So what I did is I took all of these principles and then combined them into my uh, longevity coaching program, which is a separate coaching program I have online that people can sign up for. It's not cheap. It's like $1,995. Is something I still sell, and but I also have a lot of longevity books, which are in support of this approach. So 
I guess to answer your question, how can people live a long life? They can follow the 10 principles and they can extend their life for decades. Wow. Um, I mean, the 10 principles are interesting. I, I could probably maybe do three of those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could do all 10 consistently all the time. Well, it's each, it's going to be different for each person. And that's part of what you try and teach coaches and the training program is how do you well work with people to help them figure out which of the 10 principles they should focus on that are most pertinent to their long-term health. Yeah. Like I could do the spiritual connection. I could do the chakras. Um, you know, I, I, I could do the thought part of it. Um, I definitely don't like to exercise though. It's just not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah, I found the subject of immortality and longevity very interesting. Now, immortality, of course, is different, and it's an extension of longevity. One of, one of the interesting things that happened to me was after I published my book on physical immortality, history, and how-to guide, one of the, uh, there was a discussion forum to talk about it, and a guy, after a year or more, a guy came onto the discussion forum who said he was an immortal and he liked what I was saying and he wanted to chat. So we held a chat for six months. And this led to my book, The Commentaries of Living Immortals. Now, this is really interesting. This is, I don't know if it's true or not. And the way I state it in my marketing is it's either a fantastical, incredible story, uh, just fun to read or it's one of the greatest pieces of knowledge about human history that we can have happen. So the guy's story is that he was born in the British Isles and he's 2,800 years old. That he was born in about, he says he was born in 812 BC. And he used to say, I'll read this from my website. He says, I used to live in a small house with a wooden hay bed with brick fireplace wall, small kitchen area. Parents died young by being age 17. They got sick, ill with hunger. They were 45 years old. Near the end of the Neolithic start of the Bronze Age, Brittany. Back then, the Viking era. I don't know if the Vikings were then, but then shortly after, I was still a young immortal, age 20. And then I moved to an I in, moved inland, moved to Ireland. He was a new fur deity named Lugus till age 160. And he talks about his life. And then he goes on and get this is getting pretty far out. That's why I just say it's the story of this guy, whether it's true or not. He claims that he's met a lot of other immortals. He says he's met immortal 170 other immortals dating from 20,000 years old to 110 around the earth. Gods are in another league and met 15 gods and goddesses. Most are Norse. Most are Norse Celtic gods. Well, this ties in nicely with all the science fiction we see recently on Thor from uh, Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's any truth to this, but he told, he's told an incredible story. So I, you know, I thought, why not? And I put it all in the book. And I found a lot of interesting statements that were made. Uh, 
how mortals can become immortal, lots of interesting things. And so beyond the books I've written on my own in terms of researching the age people can live to, this guy claims that there are people who live beyond that and become superhuman almost. And that uh, there were a lot of historical personages he mentioned or even came into this discussion. I don't know if I believe any of this, but I will say it was pretty fascinating, not boring. <laughs> and it, so people may be it, interested in reading it. It makes me think of, um, have you ever heard of the immortal St. Germain? Oh, yes. What, what is your take on uh, him? Well, I don't know. It's another story of an immortal who's mm -hmm. lived hundreds and hundreds of years, who um, kept coming back. I don't. I, I have read a book about Saint Germain some time ago, but honestly, I don't remember all of it. But the question is: is where you draw the line on what's true about longevity and what's not? I mean, one of the claims that I, I wrote a there was a book written about that I I put a story on my website uh, blog is there's a claim that there's a guy in Burma and an old monk mm -hmm. who has lived for a thousand years and there's pictures of him too. And how do you prove if somebody has lived an excessively long lifestyle or not? I mean, how would you even prove that? I mean, maybe they have some ancient objects. Well, maybe somebody gave them to him. Then there are stories. Did he have knowledge of the time? How do you test that? How do you check that? I don't know. I don't know how you would even prove or disprove somebody lived a really long time. And I think that's part of the reason these people could do exist is that nobody will believe their stories anyway. And I just think life is much more mysterious. And there's many more things going on than we have any idea of. The, the more I learn, the more I realize how much we don't know. And we really don't know how long people can live and how long they have lived. I do think there's evidence that there may be people on this earth who have been here for thousands of years and nobody would believe it anyway. So they can just live their lives or affect things on their own. Of course, that, that gives a rise to a lot of these conspiracy theories about the Illuminati, and I don't know if any of that's true. But um, the more you dig into it, the more you find some really fascinating questions, which there's really not any good answers to. I wonder if you could carbon date a living person. Well, I don't think you could because people's bodies uh, totally replace themselves in some period of time. I don't know if it's, I don't know that's what the number of years is. but That is correct. I just Googled it. Cannot, can, we can't be carbon dated. Yeah, because that's only pertinent to things that are 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 done and in the ground, like uh, charcoal or uh, somebody's body who's dead. So you can't really prove or disprove how long people have been around. How strange is that? <laughs> that we can't even tell how old somebody is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there, you can then there's the issues of telomeres. And I wrote a book on telomeres, which are the end caps of different uh, genes. Uh, and those supposedly tell how long you can live, but you can also change the length of your telomeres depending on your lifestyle. So I don't think we have any good way to measure 
how long people really can live or how long they will live. And we really can't say with any certainty how long people have lived. Um, but it's a fascinating question. I guess that's why I wrote so many books about the topic. Uh, how about re reincarnation? Now, that's an interesting question. And I haven't written a book about it, but I have my own personal experience, if you'd like to hear it. Love it. So one of the unusual experiences of my life is that I remember my birth and even before it. And it goes back to, I felt my consciousness was part of something off the earth, that it was a greater consciousness, but I felt I needed to go back. And I broke part of my consciousness off and headed towards earth that in upstate New York, I found several couples and I picked one couple and I, as my parents. And then as I got near, I, I was pulled into my mother. And then I remember being inside her womb. I remember being in her womb for probably months and the different sensations, um, hearing things from outside. It was kind of, I was kind of living in a daze, I would say. Then the womb seemed to get smaller and smaller and smaller, which meant I was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally I kicked, which broke my mother's water and it was time to be born. And I was a breech birth. They had to pull me out by my feet first. So they pulled me out and it was, I got to tell you, being born is very uncomfortable. It's a really not an experience you want to go through twice. <laughs> because there's a tremendous amount of pressure. And then I was out and it was cold. And I think I was breathing, but the doctor hit me anyway. And so I, you know, I, I had a big gasp. And then your first breath is like breathing fire. And it's incredibly painful. And then you start breathing and that's when you're crying. And in this case, <clears throat> I think he hit me a couple of times because I was choking and I found out they put me in an iron lung to help my breathing for a few hours until they took me out. Uh, I remember being pat a day or two later being passed around by my grandparents. And that was interesting because one grandmother was holding me with kind of bony arms and I was crying, it was uncomfortable. And then other, other grandmother says, it was a nurse, says, here's how you should hold them. And she did. And I felt more comfortable and didn't want to cry because I wanted to be nice. And I remember a lot of experiences from my babyhood. I remember being in my cradle. I remember my mom holding me. I remember my dad playing games, tossing me until he accidentally tossed me into a wall, which wasn't very nice. He didn't do it on purpose, though. And so I remember my entire childhood. When I was two years old, I remember sitting in front of a TV, and this would have been in about 1957. It was a black and white boxy TV. And I suddenly seemed to wake up and, and realize what everything was around me. And I thought, oh, wow, I've been dozing all this time, and now I'm really alive. So I've read on the internet that there are different people who've had similar experiences, some who've actually chosen their mothers, some who remembered their birth. So I'm not the only one. I'm not unique, but it is very unusual. And I'm trying to figure out what's the significance of this in my life. And I don't know that I totally understand it, but maybe it's one reason I do have a more open mind to the unusual 
because I've had a very unusual set of experiences in my life. Oh, I mean, like, I don't remember, like, I thought I was pretty unusual because, like, I could remember before I could walk. Like, I remember crawling, you know, I remember being in the playpen and looking at that mobile thing that spun around. Right. But but I don't remember being born. I don't remember, like, infancy, I guess. I remember, like, my, my memories probably start, maybe I have to say around six months old. You know, I think Which is pretty far back for most people. It is. It is. And we're, we're told we're not supposed to remember back that far. And that uh, we're, we're just told that's not possible. But you know what? It is. And if we really make an effort, we can go back much further in our memory than we ever thought was possible. So um, anyway, that's what I remember. That's interesting. Ha- have you ever tried any type of like regression? You know, to kind of go back to see where you were, you know, prior to when you found yourself in your mother's womb, like like all the way back. Well, I've, I've said somebody tried to regress me to previous lives, but I and I up with a few things, but I don't know that any of those are really true or relevant. Um, but I've read enough stories that I believe some people are reincarnated. Are all people reincarnated? I don't know. Uh, but I think it sometimes does occur. There's enough good stories and evidence about that. So, how about like with the uh, Dalai Lama, how he, you know, when he dies, they go out, they find the child, they show him some objects from a previous life and he identifies them and it becomes the next Dalai Lama. Uh, I think it's certainly possible because I think some spirits do come back to this world. And um, again, the world is much stranger than we think. We try and, build a structure of what we think is real from what we learn in school, what our parents teach us. And usually that the boundaries of that are much more contracted than what the real truth of the world and the universe is. And we need to reach outside that box to really understand truth. Um, Let me talk about what I think is the spiritual evolutionary path, if I might. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the most important books I ever read, besides the Bible, is what's called the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't. I'm going to have to look that one up because it sounds like something I would love to read. Yeah, it's it's a book that's on the internet as well as in printed form. And it goes back, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, P-A-T-A-N-G-A-L-I. There it is. Found it. And it goes back a couple thousand years ago. It was written, they don't know if it was written by one person or multiple persons, but what it consists of is four books of Yoga Sutras written in Sanskrit, which is very compact. And the four books, they talk about the spiritual growth path, the how people evolve higher levels of consciousness. And they also happen to mention the paranormal events as a side effect of spiritual growth. And I thought it was very fascinating because it was before many religions existed. And, but it really is kind of a, in fact, a lot of people call it a scientific exposition on yoga. And it explains this evolutionary path that's built into all of us. And it talks about how we can reach different levels of our consciousness 
and what the different things are we do to we do to do that. What are the different spiritual abilities we can gain as a result of that? And that ex that explains to me that we do have a an ability to use techniques like meditation or deep prayer to grow spiritually. A lot of the saints had many spiritual experiences, not only healing, but abilities to levitate, things like that, as well as, of course, Indian yogis who have had many things that they could do. And it all seems to be an outgrowth of the spiritual evolutionary path. So I don't condemn religion. I think religion is very important. I think religion really offers people a path. It may be convoluted. It may not be the most direct path to spiritual growth, but it offers them a path that they can follow to improve themselves spiritually. So I admire all true religions as being aids to people spiritually. But I think that many religions can be confusing because they force you to accept a particular dogma, which is written by a human, written by a person. Whereas the truth is deeper than that. The truth is more about what things you can perceive with your own consciousness and how you can make a connection from your consciousness to your spirit. Spiritual growth is all about connecting to your spirit and letting your spirit shine through into your daily life. The more you can do that, the more you can let yourself be controlled by your spirit, the more enlightened you are. I, totally I also believe, agree. yeah, there's more than one enlightenment that people can go through. I've had several enlightenment experiences in my life. I had one enlightenment experience that had to do with opening my crown chakra and energy coming in and the experiences I got from that. I had another very different enlightenment experience for opening my heart chakra and a dramatic experience I had from that. And one of my books is, is about this, the enlightenment process and a lot of stories of spiritual enlightenment by different people. And again, my own opinion is there are multiple stages of enlightenment. I don't think we ever stop growing as a consciousness. We don't ever stop, stop growing spiritually. That we're always learning something new. We're always experiencing something new, which it makes sense because if we live in an infinite universe, there's always need to be new steps for you to, to achieve in your growth as a spiritual being. So yeah. anyway. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wrote a book myself called Enlightenment Guaranteed. Cool. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with, with that topic. And I just purchased the book that you uh, told me to look at. So I want to check that out tonight. And I one of the books that really affected me a lot was uh, the autobiography of Yogananda. Yes, I remember that. I did read that. That's a very interesting story. And I visited some of some being here in California. I visited some of Yogananda's uh, shrines, and a uh, fascinating guy who had quite an impact on people. Yeah, and he Especially also he also worked on uh, had some of his disciples help Van Tassel with the in, immortality machine. Yeah, I don't know much about that. What is yeah. that machine about? It's the Integratron. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's in the middle of the desert in California. Um, uh, the, the, I believe the key to the... He, he never got to finish it. Um, there's a whole bunch of government conspiracy stuff behind it. 
But the core of it is that it somehow uses vibration and frequency to heal the body. Okay. So it doesn't have to, and, and the body can just keep regenerating itself and, and basically become immortal in your physical form. Well, I think there's lots of potential nexuses of technology and spirituality, which we have not explored, which will be explored in upcoming centuries. And maybe he was onto something. I do believe that there's lots of vibrational frequencies that people can connect to consciously. Like I said, whether it's a rock or a tree or other people. And so it kind of makes sense that there are things people can do to enhance their spirituality, which might even involve different equipment to aid them. Um, I'm pretty open-minded on the topic. How about one of the books you wrote, and it's sort of along the same line of yogis and stuff like that, you wrote a book about levitation. Yeah, this was a series of books I wrote on the paranormal, and I tried not to make them too formulaic, but... Um, I wrote recently uh, by location levitation. And um, I think there's a lot of stories of that, especially in Christian saints who learn to levitate, not by trying to levitate, but by them having such deep spirituality through prayer that they started to acquire many of these abilities too. Um, I'd like to also mention by location because I had an experience with bilocation, and bilocation is also one of the things that, that many saints also exhibited. Can I talk about that? Absolutely, because I, I, I've also heard of that also through, uh, like, St. Germain actually was supposedly able to do that too. Mm -hmm. and it also I kind of my, falls into, like, the quantum idea of being able to be in multiple places at one time. So I had an, an interesting experience a few months ago, which is maybe a type of bilocation. Um, I got up in the morning and I saw a phone that was on a table here. It was a different iPhone. It wasn't my iPhone. And my son was living here at the time and he didn't have an iPhone. And I picked it up and looked at it briefly. And I thought, this is really strange. And um, wondered how it got there. And I couldn't explain it. In fact, I, I talked to my son and he got up. He didn't know anything about it. God, how, how did this phone get here? And I put it down and the cleaning lady came and a couple hours later and I couldn't find the phone. And I thought, what happened to that phone? And I looked around and it was on a table, different table. And I said, oh, there's a phone here. Whose phone is that? And the lady says, it's my phone. I said, what do you mean it's your phone? I said, can I pick it up a second? She said, sure. So I picked it up. It was the same darn phone. But it couldn't have been there because she wasn't there earlier. It couldn't have been her phone that I saw because there was no way for her to get into my, my house. There was no way for it to be her phone, but it was there. And uh, so I thought this is some type of strange phenomenon. I haven't experienced it before because things are showing up which shouldn't be there. And later I find out who it, whose phone it is. So that was my own experience. But it turns out there are many experiences, and that's the reason I wrote the book, about people who had experiences of bilocation, 
or things being found out of time. And this is another of those abilities that the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali talk about in terms of having your consciousness split or in more locations than one. Uh, for instance, some saints were known to be two different places at once trying to help out their parishioners. And uh, there's a lot of disconnect in our reality, I think. And most of the time people ignore those disconnects because they just don't make any sense. But if you really try and be sharp and observe what's going on around you and don't think you're, you're, you're crazy you're on, on your own, then you'll see a lot of things which are unexpected phenomena. Uh, it's, the world is a strange place. So do you think that reality itself is like an actual material reality or do you think reality is information based? Hmm. Now you're talking about the idea of whether the reality itself is a simulation, right? I don't know if this, I don't know about the word simulation, because uh, then that means it's pre-programmed. But it does, I would say, just, just more of an information-based, you know, almost like a an autonomous simulation maybe would be a better way of, well, I, that's it. a good question. That's an excellent question. And I will say this from all my experience and studies, and you ask some really deep questions, Gary, so I really appreciate it. Thanks. But uh, you make me think. But I think there are many things in our reality that we don't understand. As much as we think we understand as a technological high power civilization, we may only understand less than 1% of reality. That most of our abilities are something we will develop in the future that we don't are not normally perceived now. Anyway, the reality we live in is changeable. We can create consciousnesses from our thoughts. We can actually visualize things which become thought forms or even more powerful entities if we keep focusing on them. That our consciousness itself can change reality. It can change our futures. It can change the existence we have now. That our consciousness is, of course, a lot more than just chemicals in our body. It is something that's connected to the spiritual force of the universe. So I guess the answer that I've come to is that reality is very malleable. It all depends on what you believe in and the strength of your belief. And wasn't there a quote in the Bible that... Um, having to something Jesus said having to do with the, the strength of your belief could move mountains and I think that's true I think that there are so many abilities that we can have and paranormal so many things we can do spiritually and it, it's demonstrated by a lot of the books I've written that there are many things that are outside the realm of what most people consider possible that really are possible and that our consciousness not only individually but our group consciousness can really change the world can really change reality have and you ever have you ever had like an out-of-body experience or near-death type of experience where your consciousness felt as if it was existing outside the body well i've had a couple of simple ones no, i'm not really big on that and that i i really haven't experienced it much i did have some exercises I tried in college about learning how to go out of body 
and I I started rising about my above my body and then got so scared I kind of slammed back down. I've had a couple of dreams, which would indicate I was actually in another location. And I've certainly read a lot about it, but that's not what I would call a great ability of mine. Right. But I, I believe in it. How about yourself? Um, I had an experience with a, a, an epileptic seizure that lasted for about 20 minutes. And, um, and it definitely, I, I remember just being in a vortex surrounded by color and sound and feeling really peaceful. And um, it, it was pretty amazing. And, and it actually was life changing because, um, you know, I, I think that that's when I really said, like, you know what, I, I'm definitely not just a body. Yeah, no, I, that's pretty neat. Although I did have an opposite experience, which might uh, give the lie to everything we think we know, because I had a heart operation a couple of years ago where they replaced a heart valve of mine. Okay. And they rolled me into the operating room at 7.30 a.m. And they pulled me out. And I did not experience anything at all until I woke up at about 5 p.m. in, in the... Um, in the uh, what do they call a ward where they put people after an operation? Anyway, um, so I didn't have any experience. I expected to be floating or mm-hmm. having some union with God. Nothing happened. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. who knows? There, there's but, lots of things that go on with us. Yeah, anesthesia is a weird thing because it is. It's just like I had the same same experience with anesthesia too, or it's like it just kind of it's like a blackout. You wake up, you lose time, and that's it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. It was a totally lost time for the, the whole day. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's why I like to write about so many unusual and strange things. Those things are what fascinate me because I have I am grounded in a firm technical education. I know what science and engineering says is real. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've taken courses on relativity and some on quantum mechanics. I've I spent my life in technical positions in Fortune 100 companies in IT. I know what our civilization considers real. But when you look at the total realm of all the things out there that exist, it's a lot more. It's a lot, lot more. And we shouldn't close our minds to what's possible, whether that's spiritually or archaeological or paranormal, because many of these things exist. And we, we should not just rest in comfort on a limited belief about our world because the more you open yourself up to learning new things the more you'll realize how much there is that we really don't know anything about yes that's really true and and that's why i love doing this podcast is Mm -hmm. and, and talking to so many people and hearing different views and different experiences um you know Life is really, really amazing, and it's fascinating, and there's so much to explore. You know, um, you know, yeah. it's, it's just it's just incredible. There's just so much more to it than getting up every day, going to work, and making money. No, I think your podcast is a great idea, and I I look forward to to seeing it grow because uh, I think it's really cool to have uh, have a person like you doing this open-minded everything imaginable podcast <laughs> thanks so much and thank you for taking the time to come on um again uh can you tell my listeners where they can find you and um in your you know, where they can find your books sure so my website again is called mkeddingtonbooks.com that's spelled m k e t t i n g t o n b 
B-O-O-K-S.com. I have different categories, like 12 categories on my website, and I have a page on each of my books, which each page leads to the different locations you can find the books, whether it's on Amazon, digital or hardcover. And I have audiobooks too, for almost all of my books. So that's one location. The other one on my uh, longevity studies and, and longevity training is personal-longevity.com. Again, personal-longevity.com. And uh, I really look forward to people coming to my site and you can send me a message and I'll respond to it. And uh, this is just something I really enjoy like you do. Awesome. Thanks for talking to me. And I'll also post links to your site, and I'll also post a link to your Amazon page in notes to this episode so my listeners can check it out that way to make it easy for me. Okay, great. Great. Thank you, Gary. You're welcome. Thanks. I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.